Welcome, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences. This is the radio show and the podcast of the Catholic Association, where you can get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And if not, you're listening for free wherever you get your podcasts. You can go on ahead to our webpage, thecatholicassociation.org org slash podcasts and you can sign up there it'll send you over to uh, all those places where podcasts are sent out into the um this uh, into the satellite airwaves or whatever they are uh be sure to subscribe tell your friends about us and welcome to the today's episode i'm here in dc today looking at the capitol as i always mention with my friend and colleague at the catholic association andrea picciotti bear wait andrea you are the legal eagle at the Catholic Association. I never want to forget to say that. I love that you do that. And I, I before we started, we didn't um, decide whether I was going to be witty or charming or... <laughs> or just legal, a legal or legal. I was going to be totally boring like most lawyers in Washington. <laughs> Thank God you're not boring like most lawyers. <laughs> well, I think uh, our guest is witty and charming, so I'm really, really happy that oh, we were able to... Oh, and he's a repeat guest. Yes. He's so kind to come and talk to us again. We're talking about our good friend. We, he's a mutual friend of ours, and his name is Father Benedict Kiley. He is a priest of the personal ordin. Oh, I'm not going to be able to say that. Ordinariate. Ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham. He was born in London. He has that charming accent. He's ordained in England in 1994. He was a priest of Vermont, if you can believe it, for a long time. Vermont's a beautiful state, but it's bitterly cold. And he runs the charity Nazarene.org, which helps persecuted Christians. And this is um, of, of a big concern for us at the Catholic Association, and, and I hope for all Christians and all, all people of goodwill everywhere, the fact that Christians are being persecuted all over the world. Um, he does a bunch of other stuff. He, go, he travels like mad, and he was just in Syria. So with that, uh, because that's what we want to talk to him about, let me bring in Father Benedict Kiley. Good morning, Father. Hi, Gracie. Hi, Andrea. It's a great joy to be with you ladies, the Catholic Association ladies, once again. You know, I said good morning, but it's probably later. You're in Canterbury, England. Isn't that yes. true? Yes. It's, it's, no, it's, well, it's not morning. It's the afternoon, but um, it's still light, thank God. And uh, yes, it's not uh, bitterly cold. And I will try my very hardest to be both charming and witty. Um, <laughs> we can count on you, Father. <laughs> you'll never have me back again if I'm not. <laughs> Father, are you drinking tea or that gin that you make out of kumquats <laughs> or something? It's a little too, it's a little too early for gin. No, it's I never too early gin. for liquor. Yeah, that's that is true. <laughs> uh, that is very. That's a very Catholic statement. It is. Um, uh, no, I make gin out of quince. Quince, a lovely, a lovely fruit. We yeah, love quince fruit. jelly. Yes, well, or gin. I make gin. Or I make gin. gin, but no, I am not drinking gin. It's a little too early. I did have a cup of tea, properly made, unlike the way you Americans try and make tea. We just um, we but, make it in the form of coffee. Well, you make it with hot water, which is a, a, a grave sin against humanity. It has to be boiling, but that's not what you're talking to me about. Oh, boiling water! I was wondering. <laughs> Wait a second. I was wondering how you made tea. <laughs> sun tea or something? Sorry. Nothing. That would be Nothing. a reference that you wouldn't understand. No, a not oh, important okay, one. Okay, good. Okay, good. You know, Father, we know that you were just in in a hot spot of the world, and frankly, <laughs> frankly, Andrea and I. Well, okay, I'm not going to speak for Andrea because she's smarter than I am. Because I spent the day studying yesterday. She spent the day studying. <laughs> 
when I was reading x-rays. I have to say, I was busy. I was a busy woman yesterday. But my question is, okay, well, I mean, I have to admit to total ignorance when it comes to everything that's been going on in Syria in the last couple of weeks. It's very embarrassing to say, but you're going to enlighten us because you were just there. Right, Father? Slight, yes, I'll try and enlighten you. I mean, one of the things that's very important to remember, and I always say this when I'm talking to anyone, is how complicated mm -hmm. the situation is. Whenever you're talking about anywhere in the Middle East, uh, I learned that on my first visit to Iraq way back in 2015, that uh, whatever you think you know, uh, and all your preconceived ideas and prejudices even, have to be thrown out of the window. And in fact, you discover it's more and more complicated oh. than you realized. So Syria, yes, I've been waiting to get, I've been doing this ministry now for five years and been to Iraq multiple times, but I've been wanting to get into Syria for a long time and it's been very, very, very hard. It's extremely difficult to get a visa, but also just because of the situation. But finally, through various um, wonderful people, I got a visa to get into Syria and had to move fairly quickly. Um, Father, yes, I was um, could, you, could you help us? Because as Americans, we're notoriously um, ignorant when it comes to geography. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Gracie's always saying it's somewhere in the Midwest when she refers yes. to like California. Yes. Um, there is next to Kansas. But but could you? I remember yesterday as I was I was doing a little bit of preparation for today's conversation. I pulled up a map um, because it helps it helps me always to visualize. And you've been to Iraq before. You were in Syria and in Lebanon. Could you give us and our listeners a little mental picture? of um, the geography and the topography? Uh, well, don't ask me to say whether it's in the north, south, east, or west, because I can't do that. I'm not, um, <laughs> I have a part of my brain missing for It's directions. your compass, your compass is yeah, missing. You, have, you have a moral uh, compass though, well, that's good. No, I have, please God. Um, but uh, Syria is, I'm trying to think of the map now, I'm, I'm not very good at that. But what I, I a better way of putting it for, for, for our listeners, I think is, it's the Holy Land. I mean, the whole, that area of the Middle East, Syria, uh, Lebanon, parts of Iraq, obviously Egypt and Palestine, Israel, are the Holy Land. The, this is the place, that the lands that the Lord himself walked upon, his disciples, his apostles walked around. The Holy Land isn't just Israel, Palestine. Obviously, as I said, Egypt, because the Holy Family went to Egypt. Mm -hmm. But Syria, we hear about it. That's why it's important when we hear in our scriptures um, about we hear about, about the Lord walking around in these places. So the topography of Syria is it's quite mountainous, uh, um, barrenish. It's desert. Well, that was the other thing. When when we talk about desert, we tend to think in the west of somewhere like Saudi Arabia, lots of sand. When they speak about the desert, and when the Bible speaks about the desert, it's not sand. They're talking about these just these areas that are very rocky, hmm. very bare, and that's what Syria looks like. You get a real impression, uh, as I was being driven to a monastery outside of Damascus, it was that sort of scenery. And I really ha had a sense of this is what it meant when the Lord went out into the wilderness. And um, hmm. it's not sand. It's it's uh, brown, barren. sort of rocky, barren. Yeah. And it's very um, daunting territory, right? I've, I think I saw Syria from the Golan Heights. Would that make sense geographically, Father? The, yes, it would make That's exactly right. That's very much disputed territory. Okay, and 
yes, you, 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 you get a star for your geography and, Thank and general you. knowledge, Gracie. <laughs> and um, you know what we saw from the Golan Heights? We saw, this was a couple years ago, but we, we, we saw tanks moving around this, mm. a, a, a town that, had, that looked very damaged. Uh, it was very sad. Well, oh, and we were hearing very, bombing as well. That, yeah. That, uh, that, I mean, that kind of thing to see and hear it is a bit more of a, of a shocker. It's a shock, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I heard much. that when I was in Iraq when the bombing was going on in Mosul. But um, it's, it's, it's the Holy Land. It's where the Lord walked. It's where hundreds, if not thousands, of saints have come from. It's where, it's where our church was effectively born. As I always say, again, you've heard me, Gracie, when I preach, mm-hmm. I remind the, the audiences, uh, the congregations, that when Saul was on his way to Damascus, he was on his way to an existing Christian community. Mm-hmm. Remember, Saul was going to Damascus to arrest Christians before the Lord knocked him off his horse. And I was privileged. I mean, it was just incredible. I was staying one street away hmm. from the street called Straight. If we remember from our, the Acts of the Apostles, we remember that uh, Ananias is told to go to a street called Straight hmm. because a man called Saul will be waiting there who's blind. And uh, I was a street away, and indeed the street is fairly straight. <laughs> and I went to the, to the chapel. 2,000 years later. <laughs> 2,000 years later, and I went to the chapel where the house of Ananias is and um, just extraordinary. I mean, that's that was in a sense a pilgrimage. I wasn't there, as it were, to be on pilgrimage, but it was a pilgrimage, and that's why it's important for I think American audiences and and British uh, Western audiences to really realize that this is our heritage. We we come from them, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. This is why when we care about persecuted Christians, it's not just the fact that they're being persecuted. It's these are our ancestors. I mean, in a sense, they're our almost spiritual parents and, and certainly brothers and sisters. And if we don't care about the fact that this community is slowly disappearing, uh, we're going to lose something. Uh, apart from the people, we're going to lose such a, a huge part of our history. I've, I've heard you talk about this, Father. I've heard you preach about it. And you do, you do draw this, this wonderful bright line between um, us as Christians 2,000 years later, and the first Christians who populated that area and, and continue, they've, they've lived there uh, without, without any pause, right, in all that time. Um, this, this is our land as Christians. It's, it's, their, it's their place. And, so, and, I, and I, know, I know personally, before I started understanding a little bit, and, and also the way you preach about it, that it, it's easy for people to think of it as um, a Muslim area. And, right. and that the Christians are interlopers, and it's really not about who's an interloper. It's that this the these people, the Christian people of the Holy Lands, are uh, indigenous people of the Holy Lands. They've been there always, exactly, and, and deserve to stay and to be safe there. Exactly, and they were very strong. Uh, I mean, as I said, that the 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 numbers of saints and the, and the strength of the church there. Uh, was so powerful in the first centuries and then yes with the rise of Islam from the rise of Islam Christians have struggled uh, in the Middle East uh, but now it's it's really at a critical point it's truly a critical point Syria uh, uh, as well was and is in theory a secular state so all religions have the right to practice um, it's it's not a Muslim uh, state, even though Muslims are in the majority, um, e- even though it's 
a dictatorship. So that, I think, is also important that Christians actually have lived in peace in Syria for a long time until all these recent troubles, which unleashed so many uh, jihadis and everything. But um, I think back back to that point, though, I think for our listeners is to remember that um, this is, is a sacred place. Syria, Lebanon as well. Lebanon didn't exist as, as a country named Lebanon. It was also part of that wider area where the Lord walked. Some of those towns we hear in in the scriptures are in present-day Lebanon or Syria. So um, that that's the real connection for us, I think. To It's not some sort of faraway imaginary place. It's It's a real place with real Christians and real people just like us trying to live our lives and wanting to bring up our families and be safe and secure. Father, I wanted to talk a little bit about Syria, your experience in Syria, and then um, and then I'm fascinated to, to hear more about Lebanon as well. But in, in right now, uh, our eyes are fixed, they should be fixed, on the news and what's going on in Syria and on the border between Syria and Turkey. And there's seems like by the hour, things are changing and instability is increasing. When you were there, did you can you did you sense that there was kind of concern of the residents, especially within the Christian um, residents of Syria, about the kind of impending um, conflict? And and because usually what ends up happening is the most vulnerable are are targeted when whenever mm-hmm. there's any kind of um, instability mm-hmm. in a land. What was your sense of? Um, people's resolve in staying in Syria, or was there an insurance interest to, uh, to leave? Well, once again, we're back to it being incredibly complicated. In Damascus, where I was, uh, there wasn't much sense of, of, of a problem, because the area that, that's being targeted is, is predominantly Kurdish, but there are Christians there. Um, the Syrian people are actually very happy that the Syrian army itself is moving back in. They're not happy with the Turk. The one thing that can be um, said is no one, Kurds, Christians, whoever, none of them are happy about Turks taking over. Mm -hmm. Uh, When the Turks take over, there are always problems. And uh, someone who's there working in in Damascus, a French charity, there's a wonderful French charity called SOS Chrétien. They're young mainly young people they send young people over into all these incredible uh, incredibly dangerous places mm. and these young young students their parents you, you know, must be excited you, well your kids <laughs> age they send these kids and they they were i was went out into a monastery outside of damascus about an hour away and walked into this ancient church for this fourth century church and there are four french kids there and i said mm. oh you're sos chrétien um but their leader there in in damascus told me that and I hadn't thought about it deeply before. What we're looking at, well, two things. One is, which is not an original thought, but it's actually true, is we are looking at still the end of the First World War. All of these problems mm-hmm. are in the Middle East, and some of them in Europe, are because of the artificial borders that were drawn up after the war, First World War, uh, false countries being created, um, you can think as in not tribal boundaries being broken, but groups who who were not who were not part of one country being pushed into another, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's the first thing, and and that linked with that is Turkey is in many ways pushing 
recreating, which is a controversial statement, but I think there's some truth in it, attempting to recreate something of the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. And so this corridor, that they, this alleged corridor or safe zone that they're creating is part of their push for their own territory, for re their own old borders being reestablished. And as I said, it's very, very complicated. So within all of that, you've got the Kurds who are suffering. There's no doubt about it. Um, Christians are actually okay as long as the, they're not being uh, controlled by the Turks or the Turkish the, the, the militias that the Turks are ins, uh, inspiring or supporting, if they are. I mean, I heard literally today that um, some of the Christian villages, they're already saying they're being driven out by the, the Turkish militias. And hmm. um, so they're suffering. They want, and it's controversial. One of the things, ladies, you know I've said before is part of my duty is what the scripture says is to say what I've seen and heard mm -hmm. as as we hear in the I think it's the letter of St. John to say what we've seen and heard which is why you're that on, might, which is why you're on conversations with consequences right. father <laughs> exactly but you know part of the problem is people if you say what you've seen and heard it, it may not be true some of it uh, what you've heard but you have to report it and some of it's all is not popular and may even be controversial and so what is controversial is to say that where the Syrian government, yes, the government of Bashar al-Assad, um, where that is winning, Christians are happy. Mm -hmm. I have to say it's true because And this is something secure. you told us before last time you were with us. That, right. That was well, sort of puzzling to us, as you say, looking at it from the outside and not understanding all the forces at play. Well, because we... It's easy for us in the West to... Uh, say what's right and wrong in sense of we have r rather nice fantasies about democracy and uh, even though I'm sitting in a country at the moment in England where democracy is being pushed out um, but that's another story um, <laughs> yes I'm talking about Brexit but we won't talk about that we have to have uh, you on again just to talk about Brexit <laughs> we know you have strong yes. opinions on the subject you can have me and uh, Nigel Farage or something <laughs> but uh, um, the, the, thing, the thing is that um, in the Middle East, it's very complicated again, and um, the, the mistake that George Bush made about trying to establish democracies, um, why, for example, people are so horrified when they speak about the Assad regime, but happily, the US and Britain seems to support the regime in Saudi Arabia, which is a brutal regime where Christianity is outlawed. There's no That's churches. Um, so we play around with who, I, I think I may have quoted it to you before, but a, a real expert on, on the Middle East, a, a real expert Christian who knows the Quran better than most Muslims, knows it off by heart. He said to me one time, they're all monsters. You just have to decide which monster you're going to work with. Mm. Now, that's what we call real politic. Mm -hmm. It's not... Um, it's not neat and tidy, but that's the truth. So at the moment, we seem to want to work with the monsters in, in Saudi Arabia, and they are monsters. Um, but Father, Father, we want to hear more about your assessment of, of these monsters okay. and your time in Syria, but we have to take a super fast break, and then we'll be back uh, with Conversations with Consequences and Father Ben Kiley.
Welcome back, friends, to Conversations with Consequences. This is the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I am here in the, our beautiful capital with my good friend and legal legal at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti Bayer, and um, not at the Capitol, but instead in Canterbury, England, we have our good friend, Father Benedict Kiley uh, of Nazarene.org, who, has, uh, who concerns himself with the persecuted Christians in the Middle East and has just come back from Syria and, I believe, Lebanon as well, Father. Yes, I was in both places. One, I was very nervous about going to, which was Syria, uh, and I was very calm about going to Lebanon. But then when I crossed the border from Syria into Lebanon, uh, they started to have a revolution. So it all got little... <laughs> it little was your unknown. correlation is not causation. That's what you need no, to say. it all got a little, a little, a little as we say in England, uh, in, with understatement, it got a little bit unnerving. Oh, it might have been your purple, I, your purple suspenders, Father. Actually, I was wearing red suspenders. But, that, so that makes all sense. Might have been red rag to red suspenders to a bull or something. Father, but, before uh, we talk about yes. Lebanon, because I definitely want to hear it um, about your miraculous um, exit. But we were we were chatting before in the first segment about Syria, and um, you gave a really great uh, reminder that this entire area is is the Holy Land, and it's um, been under strife. For for a long time since World War One, and it continues to uh, suffer a lot of instability that we quite, as Westerners, can't quite understand. Um, and I think in general, it's a very complex situation. Do you think you could just briefly give kind of a flyover overview of where we are right now with regard to Syria? in particular with the stability for religious minorities um, mm-hmm. in the area. That might be a, a great yeah. way to segue. Thank you, Andrea. Well, to slightly step back, I mean, I think we can trace a lot. Whatever your views were, and I regret to say that I supported the Iraq war in 2003, but I think most people, if they have a little humility, have realized that that was a grave mistake. Uh, because it unleashed all kinds of forces. So that, as it were, spread uh, problems. It certainly caused intense problems for the Christians in Iraq. In Syria, we we had, if we step back also to the so-called Arab Spring, starting around 2011, 12, etc., where various countries, the people, the populace, started to rise up against their governments. The same thing happened in Syria. The Assad regime was threatened and we know very strongly cracked down on uh, the dissent. Um, Then this terrible war began in Syria. Syria had a population of uh, 10% of the Syrian population was Christian. Sadly, I mean, millions have been displaced. Millions of Syrians have been displaced. Um, Unfortunately, many have left. Mm -hmm. I had a wonderful meeting with the Armenian bishop in Damascus, a young bishop, who told me 50% of his congregation have Mm. left, and he doesn't believe they're going to come back. Mm -mm. Um, And where do they go, Father, when they leave? They go everywhere. I mean, they go to Lebanon. Mm -hmm. We haven't got to Lebanon yet, but part of the problem is three million uh, immigrants have gone into Lebanon. a small country, Mm -hmm. and uh, the official figures, they have a million immigrants, uh, refugees. Um, But in fact... 
off the books. It's really three million. So a small someone actually said, if you think of it for the U.S., it would be as if a hundred million refugees turned up in the USA if you do the proportions right. of size. That's so a it's crazy number. That's why partly of the, we can talk about that in a minute, but part of the problem in Lebanon is they just can't cope. So Syria, so what's happened now is um, the Syrian government under Bashar al-Assad is winning. <laughs> it's as simple as that, with the aid, of course, of Russia and Iran, because that, that that's the other point we've got to see. The wider picture is a is a struggle between Shia and Sunni, mm -hmm. effectively a Shia and Sunni war. The Sunnis effectively being supported and aided by Saudi Arabia, the Shia by Iran. And so all these other countries are in a sense proxies. They're all suffering because of this wider war. Um, but in Syria itself, the government aided by Iran and by Russia is winning. And as I said, if it's it may be controversial, but it's just factual where the government is winning, uh, Christians are secure where they're not winning. Christians are not secure. This, again, doesn't mean that these people are good people who run these countries. It just means that this is the way it's been. Strong strong men have, have kept um, the lid on these ethnic and religious problems. Um, for example, again, in, in, in Iraq, someone said to me, a priest said to me one time, because I was asking him about life under Saddam Hussein, and he said to me, there's bad or worse, which would you like to live under? <laughs> you know, we would all say uh, uh, bad, bad. <laughs> uh, because, and so his point was, under Saddam it was bad, now it's worse. And you could say the same thing about uh, Syria. So, in, so the Father, in Syria, where the government isn't winning, what kind of uh, tragedies strike the Christians? What well, you've kind got of insecurity? Multiple, you've got these multiple groups, as I said, the Turks uh, and their, and their um, proxies, are allegedly already committing war crimes and unfortunately if you go on things like twitter you're you're seeing some pretty ghastly mm. stuff that's happening to the kurds torture etc but christians as well but it's even more complicated because many christians not all but many christians up in the north as well don't like being ruled by the kurds they felt they were being uh, pushed out there's a lot of ethnic cleansing going on this turkish plan to push three million Syrian refugees into that so-called safe zone is actually meant to push the Kurds out. So you're talking about massive demography changes. So it's extremely complicated. However, for example, in Damascus, even though it's a police state, Christians are fairly secure now. They're not being bombed. I mean, up until last Christmas, shells were falling on on the street called straight and one of the people i met took me down the street and was pointing he was telling me how every day i mean this is this is the way you can understand it perhaps this is the easiest way for the listeners to understand who are just like us i had supper with a couple syrian lady she's a lawyer she said every day she put her best clothes on hmm. because that might be the day that she died just going out to the shops just going to meet a friend um, she wanted she she said she's a very beautiful lady she said I wanted to be to look my best if this was my last day and this was the way people lived uh, they went out and they didn't know if a mortar was going to drop I saw a lot of men with one leg or yeah. no legs that's mortar injuries um, 
So, uh, Father, when we her. when we think about um, the most recent, not right now, but the last exodus of people from Syria, many of them ended up in Lebanon, um, and and like you said, there's a, a huge influx of Syrians. Some of them are Christians, and others are just other Syrians trying to get out of there um, right. and get to safety. And they've they were generously welcomed um, by uh, the people of Lebanon. And and I think that at least from what I know, many of them didn't. Many of the Lebanese didn't realize it would be for as long as it's been. Exactly. Um, and it's definitely uh, taking its toll. Can you? Well, you were there. Can you share a little bit about kind of the 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 tenor of the Lebanese? Um, many of whom are people who have lived under a kind of a religious pluralistic, successful <laughs> environment for a while, and and they're being um, asked to show a level of charity that's quite heroic. Yes, uh, and they did. They welcomed, <coughs> they, excuse me, they welcomed them generously. Uh, but as I said, with those kind of numbers, it's it's very difficult for a, for a small country to cope. Uh, they, uh, this sudden explosion that happened in the last week, which I have to say has not been properly covered by both U.S. and uh, and British media, because people have been asking me, well, what's been going on? I just thought there were a few demonstrations. But what's happened is that the people of Lebanon, all groups, they're very much united at this at this moment. Uh, they feel that their politicians have all let them down. Well, mm. that's we don't have to just be in Lebanon to think that. We <laughs> country. But they they feel. I mean, they're angry with their politicians. They're angry with the corruption. They're angry with the services. The, the the economic problems, the poverty, and yes, unfortunately, the amount of refugees there have just drained drained the life sure. of the country. So there's been an upswing, an upsurge of anger and popular revolt, which I got caught up in last week. Uh, um, but that's part of the explanation for it. And with the, but also, Iran is very very in- influential in. Lebanon now through the group Hezbollah, who uh, so it's it's got unfortunately it's got the potential still for violence mm-hmm. and perhaps, remember Lebanon had a very awful civil war in the 70s and to the 80s. So I remember please. Father Ben that um, Gracie introduced me to you. I think it was maybe two years ago at uh, a conference held by In Defense of Christians, a wonderful organization. Yes. And there was uh, a, a great presence of Lebanese and people um, who either are here in, in the U.S. but of Lebanon, uh, Lebanese roots, and they were they were forewarning us of mm-hmm. the the difficulty. It was definitely um, a cry for help and attention, and there was a, a concern that there was not much um, you couldn't sustain what was going on, and, and sadly there. It, it came to truth. Yeah, this is what's happening, unfortunately. And so, Father, when you le- when you landed in Lebanon or drove, did you drive or fly? Uh, no, I flew to Lebanon from from London and then drove drove was driven to Damascus. And oh, Syria. I thought it was the other way. So, tell us what happened to you in Lebanon. Give us a little blow <laughs> by the way back. <laughs> it was so. I left. I was leaving um, Damascus on Friday, a week ago, last Friday. And they warned me in the hotel in Damascus, which, as I said, I'd been more nervous about being in Syria. Hmm. And there was there were some nerve wracking things. But they said, oh, there are real problems in, in Lebanon and you might not make it. 
But the driver, a very sweet driver, it took, takes three hours to drive. He said he'd try. Literally, the moment we crossed the border into Lebanon, the streets, roads were blocked with burning tires and, mm. and mobs. And this was all the way, all the towns we could see as we oh, drove. Oh, so this isn't just the, in, the da- in the main, no, in the capital. this was all over the entire country. That's crazy. And we had to drive that way. And you could see in the next town the black smoke. So we knew, oh, no, the main road's going to be blocked. So he was doing wonderful work trying to drive down side streets and up and down. And uh, I was beginning to think, oh, we're in real trouble. And then he effectively got lost. Yeah. And uh, this car was pulling out with a young family in it. And the ma- my driver asked, how do I get to Beirut? And the man said, follow me. So we followed him up a ma- up the mountain, down a mountain, through the Bekar Valley, which is, funnily enough, is for those of you who love your wine, is where the Chateau Musa estates are, and some of the best <laughs> wine in the world. And I thought, oh, this would be nice if it was lovely and peaceful, just go to the Musa vineyard and have a sip. But I was a little bit more worried about other things. Anyway, eventually he pulled in, this, this the guy who was guiding us in the other car pulled into a petrol station and said, um, you can't get into it. Beirut's blocked you all the roads are blocked it's impossible to get in so he said follow me again and he we followed him into the hills above beirut to his house this is a man who's never met us in our our life hmm. he said come he, he brought us into his house he was a lovely he was a muslim sunni muslim and his pregnant wife she's about she may even be having a baby now hmm. uh, with seven children into their house a very nice house brought us in sat us down, started to feed us, Amazing. then friends came in, and he said, you can't you can't uh, go to Beirut tonight, you're staying in my house. I mean, I've never met. How wonderful. This is, remember in the letter mm-hmm. to the Hebrews, St. Paul or whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews said, um, always welcome strangers because you may be entertaining angels. Hmm. Well, I was entertained, I was entertained by angels. By angels. Beautiful. They were angels. I mean, they. this was divine. Mm-hmm. I told them, I said, I've never had this... This is extraordinary, your hospitality. It was beautiful. I, mean, I think really it's because beautiful. Gracie and I were praying for you the entire time. We were well, praying very hard for you. And, and lots of other people praying for I that trip. a few other people were praying. Lots. I'm sure yours were, the, yours were probably the most powerful. <laughs> you but, know, I was uh, wondering, Father, do you... Um, it's very easy to see the situation in Lebanon and see it just as a political uprising of people who are frustrated with their current government. But if we pull back and see it from a wider lens, just like we were mentioning before, the pressure that was being put on the Lebanese people in, in their generosity, which is a good thing, mm-hmm. uh, they were definitely carrying a big burden for mm-hmm. for instability, um, for the exodus of Syrians a- into their country. Do you think that that played a part in the lead up to this kind of explosive um, reaction by the people? Or is it something that's that's typical of of the the region at this time? It's it's you know no, like an Arab Spring or part. I mean no it I mean it is the great frustration with the corruption of their governments as I said but no I mean people said look um, we can't take all these uh, refugees because they take our jobs and. Um, they're not meant to work, mm-hmm. most of them, but it's just reality. I mean, they do the really poor jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't have the no, same protections as they have no protections. Lebanese. They have no protections. Yeah. But 
it's just too much and so it, it's all a, a, a cauldron all mixed together mm-hmm. lots of different things that that make something explosive happen and i mean it's very bad it's very tough on these poor refugees because i, I think lebanon's going to start sending a lot of them back into syria now and um it's just a horrible mess it mm. really is a horrible mess but for us as christians what we have to do is just try and help as much as possible our our brothers and sisters in need and maybe fa- maybe father ben i'm taking um i'm taking you to a place you don't want to go but what about america's involvement in all this have you been watching you were there on the ground yeah. when things were figuratively exploding here in dc what what were your thoughts well we have we're contributing to the mess. I mean, I know and I understand the the feelings of the administration about pulling troops. Quite frankly, having the troops there isn't the issue. It's um, the, the problem is who's winning now? And I can tell you quite easily who's winning. China is winning. Uh, Russia is winning and Iran is winning. Hmm. So U.S. influence is diminishing Now, many Americans might say that's fine, certainly about pulling troops back. I understand that and taking them out. However, I focus, obviously, as you know, very much on Christians, particularly persecuted minorities. Um, And how do the Christians feel when you talk to them about American influences? Do they they see that as a positive force? No, because they see the thing is there are two things. I asked the one of the bishops in Damascus, um, the Melkite Catholic bishop, Bishop. Antipas, his name was. He was great because he lived in New Jersey for 12 years, and so when I walked <laughs> into his when I walked into his uh, uh, room, he greeted. He said, "How you doing?" <laughs> that was the you didn't expect that. <laughs> I did not expect that at all. That was the strangest greeting. But he, I said to him, "What do you want me to tell uh, people in the West when I speak in America or in Britain?" He said, first to pray, mm-hmm. first to pray," and he said, "Then we need peace." And I said, well, I try to get a lot of people to pray, and sometimes they don't even want to pray for the persecuted. And he said, that's my point. So, um, Father, but in I've, terms of... I have sorry, a quick Kat. question before we have to, to wrap up. And one is, um, it, it deals with the ideas, right? I mean, we're looking at things um, oftentimes from the politics and the military perspective. One mm. great contribution that America has been making, particularly under this administration, is the promotion of the idea of religious pluralism. Um, mm-hmm. And I was wondering, you mentioned before about, uh, curiously, the totalitarian regime of Assad actually was good for Christians. Do you think that in places like Syria and Iraq, even if it's not a perfect democracy, um, pluralism has is, is got a chance? And will that create the stability for our Christian brothers and sisters in the Holy Land? If it, it could be a reality, the point about Syria was, as I said, it's a secular state. All religions have the right to practice. Iraq is not. This is part of the problem for the suffering. In many ways, the Christians in Iraq are in much more danger than the Christians in Syria, because Iraq has in its constitution, it's an Islamic state, mm-hmm. so Christians are second-class right. citizens. Any country usually where, this may be controversial, but I will say it, any country where Christians are in their minority, Christians are always second-class citizens. So um, if uh, the Constitution, one of the things Christians in Iraq are working on is they want 
the US to try and push the Iraqis to change the constitution, but that's not going to happen. So the model, I'm not saying, so listeners can hear it very clearly, I'm not saying Syria is in any way, shape or form perfect, but at least the model of mm-hmm. the idea of a secular state, yes, that is where, it's the model of the USA. That's right. In theory, that mm-hmm. you all have the right to practice your faith. Uh, no one faith dominates. That's the model which the desire for religious freedom has to work on. So if we can pursue that and push that, that's the only hope. But in the short term, things are looking very, very bleak, unfortunately, for Christians in in the Middle East. Well, I'm glad, Father, that you were able to get back safely. And thank mm-hmm. you so much for coming on with us and telling us about it. Where can people read more about your work, please, Father? Well, you go to nazarene.org and the spelling is very important n-a-s-a-r-e-a-n.org and then you'll find uh, uh, what you need to know well we're going to link to that on our podcast show notes so thank people you. can find you thank you again Father and coming thank up thank you Gracie thanks, thanks Father Andrea. we can't wait to you. see you here bless you coming up we have Father Landry's homily his, uh, his gift that he gives to us every week of a wonderful homily prefiguring this Sunday's gospel Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. To subscribe to the podcast and the media clips, you can go to to that same website uh, and find both of those things there. And this week, as is customary... Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry and do look up his daily homily written in audio on his website, catholicpreaching.com. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday. Jesus will give us the parable of two men who went to the temple to pray, much like each of us will go to church to pray on Sunday. The first man was a Pharisee. He prayed, Thank you, God, that I'm not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on my whole income. This man was what most people would call today a good religious man. Like his fellow Pharisees, he never sought to do the minimum in the practice of the faith, but as much as he could. Whereas Jews were required to fast only once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. His Jews needed to tithe only certain things. He tithed his whole income. He was outwardly a role model. But there was something drastically wrong in his conception of God, of the faith, and of others. First clue is that Jesus says he spoke this prayer to himself. That doesn't mean that he simply said it quietly so that he alone could hear. But in a sense, he was praying that prayer to himself, that he was something special. Second, he thanked God that he was not like so many others who were thieves, rogues, adulterers, and publicans. He rejoiced in what he saw as his virtue, but failed to recognize that he was proud, judgmental, vain, boastful, and uncharitable. He didn't see his own sins and failed to ask God for mercy because he didn't think he needed it. Compared to so many others around him and the other person praying in the temple, he considered himself a saint among sinners. Jesus contrasted him with the tax collector who had also gone up to the temple to pray. Tax collectors were hated by fellow Jews, not only because they were collaborating with the despicable Romans who were subjugating the Jewish people, 
but because in carrying out his duty, tax collectors would routinely rip off people for their greed. They were assessed a certain amount that needed to be collected from a region. Whatever they could get beyond that was theirs to keep. Many of the tax collectors were corrupt mafiosi, ripping off the poor precisely so that they could live well. One would think that in such circumstances, such a person wouldn't pray at all. To do so, some might say, was hypocritical. But he knew that even if others might never forgive him, God might. And he knew how much he needed God's forgiveness. With no arrogance, no self-importance and great humility, he remained in the back, beat his breast and said, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And his prayer pierced the clouds. Jesus gives a startling conclusion to the parable. He told his listeners that of the two, the good man who fasts, ties, and lives outwardly by the Mosaic law, and the detested one who rips off his own people and conspires with pagans, only one of them had their prayer heard and left in a right relationship with God, and it was the publican. To understand the surprise, it would have been like Jesus substituted a religious sister for the Pharisee and a drug pusher for the publican and said when the two left the church, only the drug dealer was justified, was truly on good terms with God. Such a comment was not about the type of life they were leading, but about the type of humble prayer they were making. This whole parable points to what Jesus says elsewhere. I have come not to call the self-righteous, but sinners. If we wish to go to church and leave on good terms with the Lord, we need first to grasp that we're sinners, that we need his mercy. We need to ask for it and seek to live by it. Only sinners, after all, need a Savior. Only those who pray for mercy will receive it. Only the truly humble will be exalted. There are, of course, self-righteous people in the church till today. When they look at themselves in the mirror, think that they're something special, that they're better than other people, that sure, they may have their weaknesses and problems, but at least they're not like those who have really sinned. They focus ma mainly on what they've done right rather than what they've done wrong. They might admit that, sure, they need a little of God's mercy, but nothing near what others need. But this self-righteousness isn't just a problem for those who, like the Pharisees, actually do try to live religiously. It can also afflict those who live like the publican. That's very popular today in our culture and even in the church. Those who are clearly violating the Lord's commandments left and right, never praying, living an immoral lifestyle, being awful to others. Rather than repenting for their sins and coming to beg for God's forgiveness, actually attack the church and those who are seeking to call them to conversion for being hypocritical and judgmental. They can pray like this. I thank you, Lord, because I'm not like one of those intolerant modern Pharisees who worry about fasting or coming to church and praying, who worry about tithing, but who in real life are worse than I am. What's the Lord want from us? He wants us to recognize that whether we've been religiously observant or not up until now. In order to have our prayer heard, we need humbly to seek God's mercy. And second, rather than focusing on other sins, we need to focus on our own and go for healing that we need. The problem with the Pharisee in the gospel was that he preferred to focus on the commitments he was keeping rather than the ones he was breaking. And we can do the same thing. Some of us, including those of us who pray, can leave prayer unjustified because we haven't been humble enough to beat our breasts and acknowledge our need for God's mercy. There's an obvious application here to the sacrament of confession. This Sunday, we will all go to church to pray. Some of us like the Pharisee, some like the publican, most of us a little of both. All of us, however, want to leave justified 
And the only way to do so is with humility, contrition, and openness to God's merciful love. Let's help each other. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry, for another wonderful homily on this Sunday's Gospel. We're so, uh, we're so lucky, so fortunate to have Father Landry, aren't we, Andrea? Absolutely. <laughs> and we were also very fortunate this week to have Father Benedict, uh, Father Ben, who um, really takes his life in his hands when he goes uh, to Syria and Lebanon, and, and he's been to all those places that uh, are hot spots where our brothers and sisters are being persecuted and are living in terrible insecurity. I really enjoy how Father Ben brings us all back to our Christian roots there. It's very easy to be just concerned um, as members of the international community for the well-being of people uh, in places of conflict. But we have a particular interest in paying attention to this because this is where Christianity First, you know where our history started, in in where God made man. Yeah, because um, there's a there's a feeling, right, an element that you hear. You hear, well, they should just leave. It's too it's too bad for them there. But that's not right. This is their these are their fatherlands, their well, ancestral and, lands, and and they belong there. They're they're, well, they're indigenous it's not, people. It's not just theirs; it's ours. And I think if we have ownership on it because of the common bond we have in faith, then we have a particular interest in not only praying, mm-hmm. like Father Ben said, uh, we really need to do more And you know, he puts, a, he puts a real emphasis on that, and I'm really happy he does, because there's nothing more powerful than prayer. Well, if we think in, about, like, Lepanto, this is a Lepanto movement moment. Mm-hmm. We really do need to increase our prayer for the persecuted and for stability in the Holy Land. Well, the music tells us, Andrea, that unfortunately it's time to say goodbye for this week. You've been listening to Conversations with Consequences, which is a radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I was joined this week in studio by my good friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. You've been listening on the radio. You've been listening to uh, the Guadalupe Radio Network at 11 a.m. on Fridays. Otherwise, uh, you're listening to our podcast, and you can go over to our webpage, thecatholicassociation.org to sign up for free, tell your friends about us, and we'll talk to you next week. 